And while they are heading out, um, if the rest of you would turn in the book of Joshua to Joshua chapter 4. It's the sixth book of the Bible. That would be great. It is a long passage, so we're going to read it as we go through it. Um, But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to this amazing story of the memorial stones. It's a story that's still very relevant today. So we pray that we would learn its lessons and make them part of our lives. Thank you again that today we're learning from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them. Being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray. Speak through Joshua 4 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, as uh, many of you know, about 25 years ago, we lived in Enterprise, Alabama, uh, where I pastor the First Presbyterian Church. And Enterprise was a unique place for many, many reasons. But one of those reasons uh, is one of the things that makes the town famous. You see, about 100 years ago, the South's economy uh, de- <clears throat> excuse me, depended almost entirely on one crop, cotton. Southern farmers began to realize the instability of a one-crop economy as rumors reached them of a boll weevil epidemic spreading from Mexico into Texas and heading their way. And sure enough, the boll weevil reached South Alabama in 1915, and it destroyed the cotton crop, and it caused a regional depression. One farmer from Enterprise, a man named H.M. Sessions. And today the Sessions peanut uh, plant is the largest employer in town. But Mr. Sessions proposed a solution. He convinced the farmers of Coffee County, where Enterprise is located, to diversify their crops, specifically encouraging them to plant peanuts. At the same time, George Washington Carver was researching and popularizing uh, new uses for peanuts. And so the crop sold well. The diversification was good for the soil, which had been depleted by years and years of just planting cotton. And in hindsight, the residents of Coffee County were able to see that the boll weevil epidemic had been one of the best things to ever happen to their economy. And so another local businessman named Bon Fleming, whose granddaughter played piano in my church, decided to commemorate this epidemic in a way that some have considered odd. In 1919, he organized a movement to place a monument to the boll weevil right in the middle of downtown Enterprise. And we have a slide. There it is, the boll weevil monument. It is right smack dab in the center of town. And it is still there. Uh, it's a different boll weevil now. A year after we moved here, uh, some 
kids tried to steal it and they dropped it and broke it. And they got it put back together again, but now it's in the museum and there's a, uh, a, a rosin version of it there. Every year uh, during football season, the seniors have some prank to do. Uh, my favorite was when they dumped an entire large Costco-sized bottle of dishwashing detergent in the fountains that surround the boll weevil. There were so many suds, they had to close the streets and cause the fire department to come in and, and hose off all the streets because of that. Um, so all true, but you can see it. And the people of Enterprise proudly proclaim the Boll Weevil Monument as the only known monument dedicated to a pest. And the oddity of the shrine has brought tourists out of their way to see it firsthand. It even served as the focal point for an episode of Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? That may date some of you. And despite of its uh, unconventional nature, the Bow Weevil Monument is a source of inspiration to all sorts of people. It represents people who were able to recognize a disaster turning into an unanticipated blessing. They didn't give themselves the credit for uh, ingenuity because uh, they would never have considered the value of crop rotation if they hadn't been forced to. And they graciously blessed that which had cursed them and learned to consider the boll weevil as a friend in disguise. But there's another lesson to be learned from the boll weevil monument. And it's the lesson of passing down the redemptive lessons we learn to future generations. Although we would expect to pass down our important life lessons, but flying time and failing memories make this rare without memorials of some kind to prompt our memory. There are many different ways of setting up memorials to God's faithfulness, and they don't have to be set in stone. We can take the monument down now. So we need to be on the alert for the redemptive hand of God in all of our trials and find ways to commemorate his blessing. And if you do that, your children and grandchildren will reap the rewards. So what does all this have to do with Joshua chapter 4? Well, more than you think. So uh, if you're still turning there, Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible, comes right after Deuteronomy. Let's go back and look at what's going on so we can do a better job of understanding the passage. As Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, they encountered what looked like an insurmountable barrier in the form of the Jordan River at flood stage. God parted the river and allowed the people to pass through on dry ground. And God knew his people's tendencies to forget his works, even his miracles. So he instructed Joshua uh, to get 12 men to set up memorial stones. He told them, verses uh, 4 through 7, Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, so this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 
When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The events of Joshua 4 conclude the sequence, began in Joshua 3, as Israel moved their camp uh, from Shittim to the edge of the Jordan River, and then three days later passed over into Canaan on dry ground. As we saw last week, crossing the Jordan is the single most important event in the book. And that's why Joshua gives sort of an extended account of the occasion. And although uh, chapters 3 and 4 cover the same event, they do so from uh, sort of different points of emphasis. Chapter 3 focused on the Ark of the Covenant and the parting of the waters. And chapter 4 turns our attention to the 12 memorial stones that Israel retrieved from the river. Now, it's a little bit difficult because it's not in exact chronological order. Reading Joshua 4 is a little like using fast forward and reverse on your CD or your MP3 player. Um, you can advance the player to listen to a snippet of a later track only to reverse to an earlier song and listen to that. And so in this passage, the author sort of jumps ahead refers to an event only to go back and fill in more details. For example, in verse 2, God commands Joshua to take 12 men from the people. But Joshua's already done that back in chapter 3, verse 12. And in verse 11, the ark passes over after all the people have made it safely to the other side. But then in verses 15 to 18, we get all the details of the priests carrying the ark up from the Jordan. So this uh, kind of narration is actually a literary technique called prolepsis. And it gives the author a lively way to tell the story and underscores uh, what's most important uh, in the story of what took place. So through this back and forth uh, telling of the tale, the main point becomes clear. God instructed Israel to take 12 stones from the river set them up in Gilgal as a memorial. These stones from the Jordan would provide a means for remembering and testifying to the faithfulness and power of God. Furthermore, from a New Testament perspective, we can see that what God did for Israel, he does for the church. He provides many means by which we can remember his great works of redemption. And that's actually the first thing we learn from our text today, the value of a memorial. If you've got the sermon outline, that would be the first blank, verses 1 through 14, the value of a memorial. It says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan, 
and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. That's an important verse. When your children come in time to ask, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan and the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over, the Ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So the opening words of chapter 4 tie these events uh, to those that precede them by means of repetition. The last line of Joshua 3 says, until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And it's almost identical to the first line of Joshua 4, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. This double emphasis serves two purposes. First, it reinforces the fact that Israel did cross into Canaan on the dry ground of the Jordan River. Second, calls attention to the fact that this is the first time uh, that Israel is called a nation. In all of the Bible, this is the first time they're called the nation of Israel. Crossing the river is more than a means to get to the other side. It's a formative act. The people of God who wandered in the wilderness now become the nation of Israel with its own land to possess. And when the waters came back and filled in the Jordan, Israel was stuck. There was no retreat. They couldn't go back across. They were now here. Now, there are earlier passages in both Numbers and Deuteronomy that refer to Israel as a nation, but they're pointing ahead to what God is going to do in the future or what people will someday say about Israel. Israel officially becomes a nation when they step onto the west bank of the Jordan. Now, as the nation of Israel concludes its march into Canaan, we're introduced to another speech uh, from the Lord to Joshua. And God has told his new commander to select 12 men, one from each tribe, 
for a very specific task. Now, back in chapter 3, verse 12, it alluded to those men, but never explained why Joshua should choose them. And now it comes, becomes clear just what they're supposed to do. So once chosen, Joshua commands each man to take a stone from the place where the priest stood in the riverbed on dry ground and to carry the stones to the place where they're going to set up camp for the night. And having received his instructions from the Lord, Joshua summons the men. He got instructions in verse 3. He summons these men in verse 4. He gives them specific instructions in verse 5. To pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. So these are not little stones. These are big stones. These are building stones. Think of kind of size stones that would be used in building a, a house or something like that. Um, Good-sized stones. And it becomes clear that the memorial stones are meant to accomplish two things. First, they're going to represent the entire nation of Israel. There's a man from each tribe, and they've selected a stone to symbolize uh, their tribe. Second, they testify to the faithfulness and the power of God. They take the stones from where the priests stood. The Lord wants Israel to see the closest possible connection between the memorial stones and the miracle that has just taken place. These are stones from where the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. Now, to this point, the narrative is pretty simple. Jews' men pick up stones, take them to the riverbank. But in verse 6, Joshua begins to unfold the purpose behind all of this. These stones are to serve as a sign for the people. So that when children ask their parents about the stones, they're going to serve as a means of instruction, a sign pointing to a greater truth. That's, after all, what signs do. They point to something else. We all have signs, too. And... Uh, we go into each other's house, we can probably see them. Uh, we may call them trophies or awards or commendations or certificates. And they all serve to trigger memories. And of course, there's major memorials uh, here in Washington, D.C. We have the Washington Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial. And there's memorials to World War II and Korea and Vietnam. They trigger memories of all those who served uh, our nation and served in those conflicts. Uh, in May, we'll have Memorial Day to remember those who lost their lives defending this country. And in November, we'll have Veterans Day to remember the service of all our veterans. And there's a bunch of other federal holidays each year, and each and every one of them serves to trigger memories. Now, these memorial stones certainly would have triggered memories about Joshua. Look again with me to uh, verse 14. It says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. God exalts Joshua, and the people stand in awe of him. We need to stop and think about that for a moment. Because I'm guessing there are some older people there that would have been young people in the early days of Moses, 
when they first went into the wilderness. And there's people who are probably wondering, you know, we knew him way back when. You see, at that time, something of great significance had happened to Joshua. If you remember, Moses set out spies. There were 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb were two. And the spies came back, and 10 of them said, no way, we can't do it. It's too scary. They're too big. And Joshua and Caleb said, nah, we need to go into the land now. And the people followed the 10, not the two. And they were so furious with Joshua and Caleb that they said to Joshua, or about Joshua, in Numbers 14, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. The people of Israel wanted to kill Joshua for his report. But now, some almost 40 years later, thousands of people are there. I remember when this man was humiliated before all of Israel. And we wanted to pick up stones to stone him and kill him. Moses stopped it, stopped us. But now God has raised him up and given him a name. Joshua means uh, the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. So he's given him a name that's greater than any other name. And we're called to follow him into the promised land. Now think about that. Do we not have some kind of foreshadowing here? Sort of a miniature play acted out before the eyes of the people that we with our historical vantage point can take up and say, Lord, you are telling the story of the gospel in all its beauty, clothing it in these historical patterns. Even in the Old Testament, men and women might catch a glimpse of how God saves through the exaltation of one who was humiliated. He does it with Joshua, and later he does it with Jesus. There is value in a memorial. You remember what God has done, not just for the nation, but also for the people, and in some cases for individuals. There's also the value of remembering. The value of remembering. Verses 15 to 24. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, 
that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So this is actually the third memorial event that the Israelite children were going to ask about in the generations to come. First was the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt. You see that in Exodus chapter 12. When you come to the land, the Lord will give you as he has promised. You shall keep this service, the Passover service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Now look back at Joshua 4 at verses 19 and 20. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. That date, the tenth day of the first month, is significant. It's the date when the Passover lamb is selected in preparation for its sacrifice on the 14th day of the month. In Old Testament history, 40 years earlier, Israel had marched out of Egypt. The Passover lamb had been killed, the blood had been sprinkled, the nation had been delivered from bondage of Egypt. So the third memorial event, crossing the Jordan, is directly tied to the first memorial event, the Passover and the Exodus. The second memorial event is remembered um, through the questions of Israel's children through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, When your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, I skipped a bunch of verses. It says, And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. However, between the first and second memorial event and now the third one, there's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness due to unbelief and disobedience. But now, finally, they've come, they've crossed the Jordan, they've set up camp, at Gilgal. And again, Gilgal is an important name. Names are always significant in the Old Testament. And the word Gilgal means the reproach has been rolled away. The reproach has been rolled away. They've established a beachhead in the Promised Land. Forty years of spiritual shame has been rolled away. The fact that they're now at Gilgal Gilgal means They're ready to follow the Lord into the land, you know, that he has given them, that he's promised them. It's sort of their welcome to the Jordan River where all the women are strong, the men are good looking, and the children are above average. Find out who listens to radio. Is that how it all ends? Well, we've got the whole book of Joshua to go to see how they actually take the land But what follows Joshua? The book of Judges. In some ways, the book of Judges is the worst book of the Bible when it comes to the people of God. The book of Judges is a mess. 
Because it says there, there was no king in those days and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And God has to keep raising up these judges to bring Israel back to himself. And even some of the judges are pretty shaky. So how come the book of Judges is such a mess? Look at Judges chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's the generation that's crossing the Jordan that we're reading about here in Joshua. But by the time we get to Judges 2, they've all died. Now let's look at the rest of the verse, starting at verse, Judges 2, verse 10. And there arose another generation after him. This is the children of the people who crossed the Jordan, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. All kinds of chaos going on in the book of Judges. One chapter after another tells you why. The generation who saw God work in Joshua never passed it on. And so the next generation not only did not know God, they didn't know what God did. They didn't know what God could do because this generation never sat down long enough to tell them. They never passed it on. The meaning of the memorial stones was never passed on. They were not remembered. God says, make sure you pass on at least this one thing. Make sure the next generation knows that God has done something for you. We have a sacred responsibility to take the truth of God and see that it's passed down to the next generation. We can't control what they do with it. We can't force them to believe it. We can't make them follow Christ, but we have to tell them. Psalm 102.18 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Psalm 71.18 says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Those who are older means if you're anywhere in my neighborhood age-wise, have a special obligation to pass on the stories of what God has done for them. We must tell them what God has done for us, and we must tell them again and again until the stories are tattooed on their souls. Tell your children how God answered your prayers in times of trouble. Tell them how God rescued you from a life of sin. Tell them how you saw God do amazing things and tell those stories and then tell them again. And every generation also needs its own stories. The older generation had the Red Sea. This younger generation has the Jordan River. And Joshua isn't concerned about these people. They have seen the mighty works of God. And although he's much older now, he's looking to the future, thinking about the legacy of faith that he's passing on to the next generation. 
And then in verse 24, he lists two reasons. They're to tell the children the stories of these memorials, these memories. The first is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Joshua is saying, tell these stories because people all over the world need to hear them. They need to be overwhelmed with God's greatness and God's power, his saving activity in your lives throughout history. It's going to impact people. Remember, a few weeks ago, we looked at Rahab in uh, chapter 2. And that's exactly what happened to her. She had heard the stories of the miracle-working character of God at the Red Sea. And the nation was paralyzed with fear because of those stories. She opened up to the need for God's salvation. The second reason is in the last phrase of this chapter, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here Joshua is saying, keep telling the story so you don't trivialize God or your relationship to him, so that your own sense of awe and wonder and reverence is deepened and strengthened the more you hear them. This is the first and most prominent of seven such memorials established throughout the book of Joshua. So let me ask you, have you been building memorial stones in your life? Maybe not, but I'm guessing you probably already have. Now, likely, these are not the stones marking the times when you heard the gospel or when God called you to a particular vocation or even times of great repentance or a time when God brought you to a great church so you could learn his word. Probably not those. I think it's more likely that you have memorial stones of times when you've experienced painful rejection and loss and utter discouragement, perhaps betrayal and abandonment. Sometimes I go to those stories and I sit there and rest by them taking in moments that passed a long time ago, but still haunt me and still affect who I am. Those stones are not there to remember what God has done and the purpose for which I exist. They're there out of bitterness or a lack of forgiveness or anger or self-pity. I've spent too much of my life putting stones in the wrong places. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. And yes, I'm looking at you. Many people, though they may not admit it, have lodged these painful memorial stones so deeply into their minds and hearts, smoothing them out over the years to make them comfortable and nice so they can try to rest near restless places. I think almost everyone has a few memorial stones in the wrong place. And we need to begin praying for their removal, knowing that if they remain, they could damage us. Now, I'll be the first to admit, those experiences in my life help shape who I am. And I firmly believe in a sovereign God whose guiding hand is present even in the most difficult of circumstances. However, unlike the memorial stones at Gilgal, mine are not always in places of celebration. When I go back to those places, I don't rejoice in what God has done. 
Those places are real, but those are places to pass through. They're not places to stop. They're not places to visit again and again and again. They're not places to find rest. So where are your memorial stones? Which ones have you set up that you might want to take your children to and show them in order to tell them uh, God's story for your life? Which ones haunt you when you experience rejection or loss or discouragement or abandonment? Which are the memorial stones that define your life? And sometimes I think it's wise, particularly as you get older, particularly as your children and your grandchildren get older to take them on a journey so they can see the memorial stones in your life, the ones that need to be removed and the ones they can rest by next to you. My mom has been a master of sharing memories and telling stories. I got a picture of her. Let me put that up. You might recognize the other lady in the picture. That's from 16 years ago. Mom would say she wants to visit us so she could tell my children the story she's already told them. But now my mom is losing her memory. And that's sad. It cuts us off from days gone by. It strips away the treasured residue of past experiences. It erases our personal history. I watched it with my dad, and now I'm watching it with my mom. Someone once said that when old people die, we lose their memorial library. I think that's a good statement. Joanne and I are leaving tomorrow morning to drive to Florida to see her. Due to the COVID restrictions, the nursing home is giving me one hour to spend with her. It will be a three-day trip for a one-hour visit. So if you'd pray for us at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, I'd appreciate it. You see, the medical staff there has notified us that my mom's kidneys are starting to fail. And she probably doesn't have much longer. Perhaps weeks, though she's pretty stubborn. She got that from her mom, and she gave it to my daughters. Um, hoping they don't watch this. <laughs> but they probably will, and I'll get texts later on. Um, uh, well, my mom would surely say it was a compliment. Actually, my daughters would say it's a compliment, too. Uh, she's 10 days from her 89th birthday, and this visit is to say goodbye. I hope to hear some of her memories again, although I am sure I have heard them all before. But you see, my mom has hopeful memories. They're not just about the past, but they often serve as an encouragement for the future.
if you're a woman goes to Syracuse University in upstate New York and you're expecting, you get to stay in class and keep going to school. Because in 1952, when they told my mom that she had to drop out of college because she was expecting, she said no. And she was going to finish. And so they changed the rules. I told you she was stubborn. So for 70 years, if someone's expecting, they get to finish school. Because my mom refused to leave that many years ago. That's a memory from the past that has encouragement for the future. It's what we call a hopeful memory. You can take the slide down, thanks. And so when the prophets of old calling upon God's people to remember the works that the Lord had done in the past, this is to prepare them for the future. They're never called upon to remember the past for its own sake, the good old days. They're called to remember the wonders of the past so their lives would be open to greater wonders that God's going to do for them in the future. We need such hopeful memories. In Scripture, symbols such as a memorial stone can be defined as a physical sign that represents a spiritual reality. In other words, the signs of visual representation of an invisible reality. So, example, the Hebrew word for sign is used in Genesis 17, which says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, I'm not going to go into that because Frank's going to cover it next week in Joshua 5. But here in Joshua 4, the same word, the Hebrew word for sign, is used to describe the memorial stones. In verse 6, that this may be a sign among you. It's a memorial that points to a greater spiritual reality. Now think about it. We still employ signs in worship today. We call them sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. As defined by the Westminster Confession of Faith, our doctrinal standards say that they are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. In other words, the sacraments are physical signs to covenantal spiritual truths. Like the signs in the Old Testament, sacraments have past, present, and future applications. For example, the Lord's Supper reflects a past reality as a sign, a symbol of Christ's death on the cross. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's pointing to what's happened. There's also present relevance for all the people who take communion to remind them of their covenant responsibilities. The very next verse, verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It also points forward to the anticipated return of Christ. The next verse, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The sacraments are similar to signs in the Old Testament because they apply not just to one generation, but to the entire church in all places for all times, generation after generation. 
And that means we have a better memorial, a more eloquent monument of remembrance than a stack of stones beside the Jordan. We have the Lord's Supper established by Christ himself less than 24 hours before he would give himself in our place. And now as we enter the second year of the pandemic, next Sunday we will return to that memorial which reminds us once again of a living God became one of us to shed his own blood to conquer our greatest enemy and bring us home to himself. And we are told twice to do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a hopeful memorial. When we partake of the bread and the cup, we remember the broken body and blood of our Lord. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the sacrificial love of God. It speaks to us of a love that will not let us go, but which reaches out to us. And yet in the Lord's Supper, we see even more than that. The Lord's Supper points not only to the past, but towards a promised future as well. The past and future are made into vital, contemporary reality for us by the presence of Christ. The meal is a memorial that reinforces a hopeful memory. And we need such hopeful memories until he comes. Amen. It's time to pray. Please do that now. Take a moment and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times we are not very good at remembering. We forget the things you have done for us. We forget the grand acts of redemptive history. And we dwell on painful things. We think of restless things in which there is no rest. And more often than we'd like to admit, we put memorial stones in the wrong places. Forgive us for forgetting. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, help us to remember. Help us to be reminded of what you have done to save us from our sins. Help us to see the signs of spiritual realities. And so once again, work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua. Help us to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Joshua, draw us ever closer to the one who established a better memorial for us in the Lord's Supper, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.